Section 13 of Essays and Reviews by Charles Hodge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Finney's Lectures on Theology, Part 1. Footnote. Lectures on Systematic Theology, embracing lectures on moral government, together with atonement, moral and physical depravity, philosophical theories and evidences of regeneration, by Rev. Charles J. Finney, Professor of Theology in the Oberlin Collegiate Institute, Oberlin, James M. Fitch, Boston, Crocker and Brewster, New York, Saxton and Miles, 1846, pages 587. Princeton Review, April, 1847. End footnote. This is, in more senses than one, a remarkable book. It is, to a degree very unusual, an original work. It is the product of the author's own mind. The principles which he holds have indeed been held by others, and the conclusions at which he arrives had been reached before, but still it is abundantly evident that all the principles here advanced are adopted by the writer not on authority but on conviction, and that the conclusions presented have all been wrought out by himself and for himself. The work is therefore in a high degree logical. It is as hard to read as Euclid. Nothing can be omitted, nothing passed over slightly. The unhappy reader once committed to a perusal is obliged to go on sentence by sentence through the long concatenation. There is not one resting place, not one lapse into amplification or declamation from beginning to the close. It is like one of those spiral staircases which lead to the top of some high tower, without a landing from the base to the summit, which, if a man has once ascended, he resolves never to do the like again. The author begins with certain postulates, or what he calls first truths of reason, and these he traces out with singular clearness and strength to their legitimate conclusions. We do not see that there is a break or a defective link in the whole chain. If you grant his principles, you have already granted his conclusions. Such a work must, of course, be reckless, having committed himself to the guidance of the discursive understanding, which he sometimes calls the intelligence and sometimes the reason, and to which he alone acknowledges any real allegiance, he pursues his remorseless course, regardless of any protest from other sources. The scriptures are throughout recognized as a mere subordinate authority. They are allowed to come in and bear confirmatory testimony, but their place is altogether secondary. Even God himself is subordinate to the intelligence. His will can impose no obligation. It only discloses what is obligatory in its own nature and by the law of reason. There can be no positive laws, for nothing binds the conscience but the moral law. Nothing is obligatory but what tends to the highest good, and as a means to that end, which must be chosen not out of regard for God, not for the sake of the moral excellence implied in it, but for its own sake, as what alone has any intrinsic value. All virtue consists in obedience to the moral law as revealed in the reason, page 301. Benevolence, i.e. virtue, is yielding the will up unreservedly to the demands of the intelligence. Page 275. Moral law is, quote, the soul's idea or conception of the state of heart or life which is exactly suited to its nature and relations. It cannot be too distinctly understood that moral law is nothing more or less than the law of nature, that is, it is the rule imposed on us not by the arbitrary will of any being but by our own intelligence. End quote. Page 6. It is obligatory also upon every moral agent entirely independent of the will of God, their nature and relations being given and their intelligence being developed. Moral law must be obligatory upon them, and it lies not in the option of any being to make it otherwise. Quote, to pursue a course of conduct suited to their nature and relations is necessarily and self-evidently obligatory, the willing or nilling of any being to the contrary notwithstanding. End quote. Page 5. As man's allegiance is to the universe, to being in general, and the rule of his obedience his own intelligence, God is reduced to the same category. He is under moral law, he is bound to seek the highest good of being, and as the highest well-being of the universe demands moral government, and as God is best qualified, it is his duty to govern. Page 19. His conscience must demand it. Page 20. Our obligation, however, to obey him rests neither on our dependence nor on his infinite superiority, but simply on the intrinsic value of the interests to be secured by government and conditionated upon the fact that government is the necessary means or condition of securing that end. Page 24. God's right is therefore limited by its foundation, quote, by the fact 
that thus far and no further government is necessary to the highest good of the universe. No legislation in heaven or earth, no enactment can impose obligation except upon condition that such legislation is demanded by the highest good of the governor and the governed. Unnecessary legislation is invalid legislation. Unnecessary government is tyranny. It can in no case be founded in right. End quote. Page 24. The question is not what form of truth may be conveyed under these expressions. We quote them as exhibiting the animus of the book. We bring them forward as exhibiting what we have called the recklessness of the writer, his tracing out his principles to conclusions which shock the ordinary sensibilities of Christians, which assume, to say the least, principles inconsistent with the nature of religion as presented in the Bible and as avowed by the vast body of the people of God. The scriptures assume that our allegiance is to God and not to being in general, that the foundation of our obligation to obey him is his infinite excellence and not the necessity of obedience to the highest happiness of moral agents, and that the rule of our obedience is his will and not the soul's conception of what is suited to our nature and relations. According to the doctrine of this book, there is no such thing as religion or the service of God as God. The universe has usurped his place as the supreme object of love, and reason, or the intelligence, has fallen heir to his authority. A very slight modification in the form of statement would bring the doctrine of Mr. Finney into exact conformity to the doctrine of the modern German school, which makes God but a name for the moral law or order of the universe, or reason in the abstract. It is in vain, however, to tell Mr. Finney that his conclusions shock the moral and religious consciousness. What right, he asks, has the empirical consciousness to be heard in the premises. Quote, if the intelligence affirms it, it must be true or reason deceives us. But if the intelligence deceives in this, it may also in other things. If it fails us here, it fails us on the most important of all questions. If reason gives us false testimony, we can never know truth from error upon any moral subject. We certainly can never know what religion is if the testimony of reason can be set aside. If the intelligence cannot be safely appealed to, how are we to know what the Bible means? For it is the only faculty by which we get at the truth of the oracles of God. End quote. Page 171. Footnote. The remarks quoted in the text are made in immediate reference to the author's doctrine that moral character is always wholly right or wholly wrong, or that every moral agent is always either perfectly free from sin or totally depraved, or that they are at all times as sinful or as holy as with their knowledge they can be. Page 554. End footnote. Our object at present, however, is not to discuss principles, but to state the general character of this work. It is eminently logical, rationalistic, reckless, and confident. Conclusions at war with the common faith of Christians are not only avowed without hesitation, but sheer nonsense, stark nonsense, eminently nonsensical, are the terms applied to doctrines which have ever held their place in the faith of God's people, and which will maintain their position undisturbed long after this work is buried in oblivion. Footnote. On page 499, after referring to Dr. Griffin's assertion that until the heart is changed by the Holy Spirit, the gospel excites its enmity to God, Mr. Finney exclaims, O orthodoxy, falsely so called, how absurd and false thou art, what an enemy thou art to God, what a stumbling block to man, what a leaven of unrighteousness and hell is such a dogma as this. End quote. Men have other sources of knowledge than the understanding, the feeble flickering light burning in the midst of misty darkness. If deaf to the remonstrance of our moral nature, to the protests even of the emotional part of our constitution, we follow that light. It belongs to history and not to prophecy to record the issue. It really seems strange when the first sentence of his preface informs the reader that, quote, the truths of the blessed gospel have been hidden under a false philosophy, end quote, that the author, instead of presenting those truths free from that false ingredient, should write a book which hardly pretends to be anything else than philosophy. The attempt to cure philosophy by philosophy is a homeopathic mode of treatment in which we have very little confidence. The gospel was intended for plain people. Its doctrines admit of being plainly stated. They imply, indeed, a certain psychology and a certain moral system. The true and Christian method is to begin with the doctrines and let them determine our philosophy, and not to begin with philosophy and allow it to give law to the doctrines. 
The title page of the book is not plainer than the fact that the doctrines which it inculcates are held not on the authority of God, speaking in his word, but on the authority of reason. They are almost without exception first proved and demonstrated as true, as the necessary sequences of admitted or assumed principles before the Bible is so much as named. It is by profession a philosophy or a philosophical demonstration of certain doctrines of morals and religion, and which might be admitted and adopted as true by a man who did not believe one word of the scriptures or who had never heard of their existence. The only doctrines which are assumed as facts and not deduced from assumed premises are the atonement as a fact and the influence of the Holy Spirit on the mind, and as to the former its nature, design and effect are all proved a priori, and as to the latter the writer professes to understand the philosophy of the Spirit's influence. Page 28. It is altogether a misnomer to call such a book Lectures on Systematic Theology. It would give a far more definite idea of its character to call it Lectures on Moral Law and Philosophy. Under the former title, we are authorized to expect a systematic exhibition of the doctrines of the Bible as resting on the authority of a divine revelation. Under the latter, we should expect to find what is here presented, a regular evolution from certain radical principles of a code of moral laws. We wish it to be distinctly understood that we neither deny nor lightly estimate works of the kind just described. There can be no higher or more worthy subject of study, apart from the word of God, than the human soul and the laws which regulate its action and determine its obligations. Nor do we suppose that these subjects can ever be divorced from theology. They occupy so much ground in common that they never have been and never can be kept distinct. But still, it is very important that things should be called by their right names and not presented to the public for what they are not. Let moral philosophy be called moral philosophy and not systematic theology. While we admit that the philosophical and theological element in any system of Christian doctrine cannot be kept distinct, it is of the last importance that they should be kept, as already remarked, in their proper relative position. There is a view of free agency and of the grounds and extent of moral obligation which is perfectly compatible with the doctrines of original sin, efficacious grace and divine sovereignty. And there is another view of those subjects as obviously incompatible with these doctrines. There are two courses which a theologian may adopt. He may either turn to the scriptures and ascertain whether those doctrines are really taught therein. If satisfied on that point, and especially if he experience through the teachings of the Holy Spirit their power on his own heart, if they become to him matters not merely of speculative belief but of experimental knowledge, he will be constrained to make his philosophy agree with his theology. He cannot consciously hold contradictory propositions, and must therefore make his convictions harmonize as far as he can, and those founded on the testimony of the Spirit will modify and control the conclusions to which his own understanding would lead him. Or he may begin with his philosophy and determine what is true with regard to the nature of man and his responsibilities, and then turn to the scriptures and force them into agreement with foregone conclusions. Every one, in the slightest degree acquainted with the history of theology, knows that this latter course has been adopted by errorists from the earliest ages to the present day. Our own age has witnessed what must be regarded as, on the whole, a very beneficial change in this respect. Rationalists, instead of coercing scripture into agreement with their philosophy, have agreed to let each stand on its own foundation. The modern systems of theology proceeding from that school give first the doctrines as they are presented in the Bible, and then examine how far these doctrines agree with and how far they contradict the teachings of philosophy, or, as they are commonly regarded, the deductions of reason. As soon as public sentiment allows of this course being pursued in this country, it will be a great relief to all concerned. We do not, however, mean to intimate that those who among ourselves pursue the opposite course and who draw out that system of moral and religious truth, as they sometimes express it, which every man has in the constitution of his own nature before they go to the Bible for instruction, and whose system is therefore essentially rationalistic, are insincere in their professions of faith in the Bible. It is too familiar a fact to be doubted that if a man is previously convinced the scriptures cannot teach certain doctrines, it is no difficult task to persuade himself that they do not in fact teach them. Still, there is a right and a wrong method of studying and teaching theology. There is a healthful and unhealthful posture of mind to be preserved towards the word of God. And we confess that when we see a system of theology beginning with moral government, we take it for granted that the Bible is to be allowed only a very humble part in its construction. Footnote. 
we were struck with an amusing illustration of Mr. Finney's reigning passion in the last number of the Oberlin Quarterly Review. It seems a physician, Dr. Jennings, has written a medical work which he submitted to Mr. Finney for his inspection. The latter gentleman tells the doctor that he has long been convinced that there must be some a priori method in medicine, some self-evident principle from which the whole science of disease and cure may be logically deduced, and he encourages his friend in his attempts to discover and establish that principle. All patients have reason to rejoice that Mr. Finney is not a physician. To be doctored on a priori principles would be as bad for the body as it is for the soul to be dosed with a priori theology. End footnote. There is one other general remark we would make on the work before us. We object not only to the method adopted, to the assumption that from a few postulates the whole science of religion can be deduced by a logical process, but to the mode in which the method has been carried out. As all truth is consistent, as some moral and religious truths are self-evident, and as all correct deductions from correct premises must themselves be correct, it is of course conceivable that an a priori system of morals and religion might be constructed, which, as far as it went, would agree exactly with the infallible teachings of the Bible. But apart from the almost insurmountable difficulties in the way of the successful execution of such a task, and the comparatively slight authority that could be claimed for any such production, everything depends upon the manner in which the plan is executed. Now, we object to Mr. Finney's mode of procedure that he adopts as first principles the very points in dispute. He postulates what none but a limited class of his readers are prepared to concede. His whole groundwork, therefore, is defective. He has built his tower on contested ground. As a single example of this fundamental logical error, we refer to his confounding liberty and ability. In postulating the one, he postulates also the other. It is a conceded point that man is a free agent. The author, therefore, is authorized to lay down, as one of his axioms, that liberty is essential to moral agency, but he is not authorized to assume as an axiom that liberty and ability are identical. He defines free will to be the power to choose in every instance in accordance with moral obligation or to refuse so to choose. This much, he adds, must be included in free will and I am not concerned to affirm anything more. Page 32. To talk of inability to obey moral law is to talk sheer nonsense. Page 4. Mr. Finney knows very well that he has thus taken for granted what has been denied by nine-tenths of all good men since the world began, and is still denied by no small portion of them, as we verily hope and believe. This is a point that cannot be settled by a definition ex cathedra. He is guilty of a petitio principi when he lays it down as an axiom that liberty implies ability to obey moral law, and consequently that responsibility is limited by ability. This is one of the assumptions on which his whole system depends. It is one of the hooks from which is strung his long concatenation of sequences. We deny the right of Mr. Finney to assume this definition of liberty as a first truth of reason, because it lacks both the essential characteristics of such truths, it neither forces assent as soon as intelligibly stated, nor does it constitute a part of the instinctive, even if latent, faith of all mankind. On the contrary, it is intelligently denied, not only by theorists and philosophers, but by the great mass of ordinary men." It is one of the most familiar facts of consciousness that a sense of obligation is perfectly consistent with a conviction of entire inability. The evidence of this is impressed on the devotional language of all churches and ages. The hymns and prayers of all people recognize at once their guilt and helplessness, a conviction that they ought and that they cannot, and a consequent calling upon God for help. It is a dictum of philosophers, not of common people. I ought, therefore I can." to which every unsophisticated human heart, and especially every heart burdened with a sense of sin, replies, I ought to be able, but I am not. Mr. Finney would doubtless say to such people, this is sheer nonsense, it is all a false philosophy, no man is bound to do or to be what is not completely and at all times in his own power. This does not alter the case. Men still feel at once their obligation and their helplessness, and calling them fools for so doing will not destroy their painful conviction of their real condition. As the doctrine, the very opposite of Mr. Finney's assumed axiom, is thus deeply and indelibly impressed on the heart of man, so it is constantly asserted or assumed in Scripture. 
The Bible nowhere asserts the ability of fallen man to make himself holy. It, in a multitude of places, asserts just the reverse, and all the provisions and promises of grace and all the prayers and thanksgivings for holiness recorded in the scriptures take for granted that men cannot make themselves holy. This, therefore, has been and is the doctrine of every Christian church under the sun, unless that of Oberlin be an exception. There is no confession of the Greek, Romish, Lutheran, or Reformed churches in which this truth is not openly avowed. It has, says Neander, the radical principle of Pelagius's system, that he assumed moral liberty to consist in the ability at any moment to choose between good and evil, or, as Mr. Finney expresses it, in the power to choose in every instance in accordance with moral law. It is an undisputed historical fact that this view of liberty has not been adopted in the confession of any one denominational church in Christendom, but is expressly repudiated by them all. We are not concerned at present to prove or disprove the correctness of this definition. Our only object is to show that Mr. Finney has no right to assume as an axiom, or as a first truth of reason, a doctrine which nine-tenths of all Christians intelligently and constantly reject. He himself tells us that, a first truth is one universally and necessarily assumed by all moral agents, their speculations to the contrary notwithstanding. Now it has rather too much the appearance of affrontery for any man to assert, in reference to anything which relates to the common consciousness of men, that to be a truth universally and necessarily believed by all moral agents, which the vast majority of such agents, as intelligent and as capable of interpreting their own consciousness, as himself, openly and constantly deny. This is only one illustration of the objection to Mr. Finney's method that he gratuitously assumes controverted points as first truths or axioms. A second objection to his mode of executing his task is that he gives himself up to the exclusive guidance of the understanding. We do not mean that he neglects the scriptures or makes them subordinate to reason. On that characteristic of his work we have already remarked. We now refer to the fact that it is not the informed and informing soul of man which he studies, and whence he deduces his principles and conclusions. He will listen to nothing but the understanding. He spurns what he calls the empirical consciousness, and denies its right to bear any testimony in relation to what is truth. It is not easy, indeed, to determine by his definitions what he means by the intelligence to which he so constantly appeals, and to which he ascribes such supremacy. He tells us at times that it includes reason, conscience, and self-consciousness. Of reason, he says, it is the intuitive faculty or function of the intellect, that which gives us the knowledge of the absolute, the infinite, the perfect, the necessarily true. It postulates all the a priori truths of science. Consciousness is the faculty or function of the intelligence that recognizes the conformity or disconformity of the heart or life to the moral law as it lies revealed in the reason, and also awards praise to conformity and blame to disconformity to that law. Consciousness is the faculty or function of self-knowledge. It is the faculty that recognizes our own existence, mental actions and states, together with the attributes of liberty or necessity belonging to those actions and states. To complete the view of his psychology, we must repeat his definition of the two other constituent faculties of our nature, viz. sensibility and will. The former is the faculty or susceptibility of feeling. All sensation, desire, emotion, passion, pain, pleasure, and in short every kind and degree of feeling, as the term is commonly used, is a phenomenon of this faculty. The will, as before stated, is defined to be the power to choose, in every instance, in accordance with the moral obligation, or to refuse so to choose. The will is the voluntary power. In it resides the power of causality. As consciousness gives the affirmation that necessity is an attribute of the phenomena of the intellect and the sensibility, so it just as unequivocally gives the affirmation that liberty is an attribute of the phenomena of the will. I am as conscious of being free in willing as I am of not being free or voluntary in my feelings and intuitions. Pages 30 and 32. Here is an analysis of the faculties of the soul in which the understanding finds no place, it is not included in the intellect, for that is said to embrace only reason, conscience, and consciousness, and reason is so defined as to distinguish it from the understanding. Here is Vernunft, but where is the Verstand? The fact is that Mr. Finney has, for this once and for once only, lapsed into transcendentalism. He has taken the definition of the reason from cousin, 
or some other expounder of modern philosophy, without remembering that, according to that philosophy, reason is something very different from the understanding. This latter faculty has thus been dropped out of his catalogue. This, however, is only a momentary weakness. Mr. Finney is the last man in the world to be reproached for the sin of taking his doctrines at second hand from any school or individual. We do not find in this analysis, however, what we are searching for. The reader of this book perceives, on perusing the first page, that he is about to enter on a long and intricate path. He naturally wishes to know who is to be his guide. It is not reason, as defined here, for that only gives him the point of departure and tells him the bearing. Of course, it is neither the susceptibility nor the will. What then is it? Why, under the new name of the intelligence, it is the old faculty, familiar to all Englishmen and Americans, as the understanding. Nothing more nor less. Not reason in its transcendental sense, as the faculty for the absolute, but the discursive understanding. The ordinary New England faculty which calculates, perceives, compares, infers, and judges. No man can read a dozen pages in any part of the book without perceiving that it is the product of the speculative understanding, to the exclusion, to a most wonderful degree, of every other faculty. This is its presiding genius. This is the organ which is phrenologically developed most disproportionately in the head of the writer, and which gives character to his philosophy and theology. Now, we earnestly protest against the competency of this guide. It does not belong to the understanding as described above, and as it domineers in this book, to speak with authority on questions of religion and morals. It is not the informing faculty, nor can it be trusted as a guide. Let a man attempt to write a work on aesthetics, putting, as Mr. Finney does, his mailed foot on the susceptibilities, not allowing them any voice in determining the principles of taste, and he will produce a work which no cultivated man could recognize as treating on the subject. Every such man would say the writer has purposely put out the light in order to see by the sparks struck by his iron-bound feet. In like manner, if any man undertakes the task of writing on morals and religion unchecked and unguided by the emotional part of our nature, by the susceptibilities, the empirical consciousness, he will most assuredly find the heart, conscience, and consciousness of all sane and good men against him. This task has been attempted long before Mr. Finney was born, and with much the same results. The understanding, which has neither heart nor conscience, can speak on these subjects only as informed and guided by the moral and religious susceptibilities, which are themselves the instinctive impulses of our higher nature. They belong to a far higher sphere than the speculative understanding, to the pnefma, as distinguished from the nus, and are masters and not slaves, the understanding, if divorced from the other faculties, may demonstrate, just as it demonstrates that there is no external world, that there is no such thing as sin or virtue or good or justice. What is that to the conscience? What becomes of all its syllogisms when the sceptic comes to die? Are they unravelled and answered by the understanding, or do they drop from its palsied hand the moment conscience affirms the truth? We consider it as the radical, fatal error of the method of this book that, it is a mere work of the understanding. The heart, the susceptibilities, the conscience, are allowed no authority in deciding moral questions, which is as preposterous as it would be to write a mathematical treatise on poetry. The whole history of the church teems with illustrations of the fact that when men write on morals without being guided by the moral emotion, or on religion, uncontrolled by right religious feeling, they are capable of any extravagance of error. But such men say, as Mr. Finney does in a passage already quoted, if they do not follow the intelligence, they have nothing else to follow. If reason gives false testimony or deceives them, they can never know truth from error. This is all a mistake. It is not reason deceiving them, but the understanding making fools of them, as the Apostle says, Fascontes ines sofu emoranthesan. This is no disparagement of the understanding. It is only saying that it is of no authority out of its legitimate sphere. It receives and gives light. It guides and is guided. It cannot be divorced from the other faculties and act alone and give the law to them as a separate power. Conscience is intelligent. Feeling is intelligent. The soul is an intelligent and feeling agent and not like a threefold cord whose strands can be untwisted and taken apart. 
It is one indivisible substance whose activity is manifested under various forms, but not through faculties as distinct from each other as the organ of sight is from that of hearing. Hence, intelligence may be predicated of the susceptibilities and moral character of the acts of the intelligence. No emotion or mental passion or feeling is a mere phenomenon of the susceptibility. Is there no difference between feeling in a brute and feeling in a man? Nothing but error can result from this absolute divorce of one faculty of the soul from the others, and especially from setting the intelligence in a state of perfect isolation, and then making it, in that state, the lawgiver of man. If Mr. Finney will take the trouble to look into the books of casuistry, common among the Romanists, or into works on what they call moral theology, he will be convinced that the most demoralizing of all studies is the study of morals under the exclusive guidance of the understanding. The Romish practice of confession has created a demand for the consideration of all possible cases of conscience, and has led to the subjection of the soul to the scalpel of the moral anatomist, laying open to the cold eye of the intelligence all the curious network of the feelings and emotions, to be judged not by their nature but by their relations. The body when dead may stand this, the living soul cannot." And hence no set of men have the moral sense so perverted as these same casuists. Jesuitism, theoretical and practical, is the product of this method of making the soul a mere anatomical subject for the understanding, and therefore stands as a lesson and a warning. Apart, then, from the radical error of making theology a science to be deduced from certain primary principles or first truths, we object to Mr. Finney's work that it assumes as axioms contested points of doctrine, and that it makes the mere understanding as divorced from the other faculties the lawgiver and judge on all questions of moral and religious truth. The result is that he has produced a work which, though it exhibits singular ability for analysis and deduction, is false as to its principles and at variance with scripture, experience, and the common consciousness of men. We feel on reading it just as a man feels who resigns himself to the arguments of an idealist who leads him step by step to the conclusion that there is no external world, that all things are nothing. Such a reader sees no flaw in the argument but feels no force in the conclusion. He knows it to be false just as much after it had been proved to be true as he did before. There is this difference between the cases, however. We are disposed to smile at the world of phantasms to which idealism leads us, but where the conclusions arrived at are such as are urged in this book, we feel that all true religion, the very essence and nature of piety, are at stake. It is not a question whether the world is real or phenomenal, but whether God or being is to be worshipped, whether sin is sin and holiness is good, whether religion consists in loving God for his divine excellence or in purposing the happiness of moral agents, whether men are responsible for their feeling or only for their intentions, whether there is any other regeneration than a change of purpose or any possibility of salvation for the imperfectly sanctified. These and similar questions obviously concern the very vitals of Christianity, and if Mr. Finney is right, it is high time the Church knew that religion is something essentially different from what has been commonly supposed. As it would be impossible to discuss the various questions presented in such a work as this within the compass of a review, we propose to do little more than to state the principles which Mr. Finney assumes and show that they legitimately lead to his conclusions. In other words, we wish to show that his conclusions are the best refutation of his premises. Our task would be much easier than it is if there were any one radical principle to which his several axioms could be reduced and from which the whole system could be evolved, but this is not the case. No one principle includes all the others, nor leads to all the conclusions here deduced, nor do the conclusions admit of being classed, and some referred to one principle and some to another, because the same conclusions often follow with equal certainty from different premises. We despair, therefore, of giving anything like unity to our exhibition of Mr. Finney's system, but we shall not try to do him injustice. We regard him as a most important labourer in the cause of truth, principles which have been long current in this country, and which multitudes hold without seeing half their consequences, he has had the strength of intellect and will to trace out to their legitimate conclusions, and has thus shown the borderers that there is no neutral ground, that they must either go forward to Oberlin or back to the common faith of Protestants. 
We are not sure that all Mr. Finney's doctrines may not be traced to two fundamental principles, viz., that obligation is limited by ability, and that satisfaction, happiness, blessedness is the only ultimate good, the only thing intrinsically valuable. As to the former of these principles, his doctrine is that free will is one of the essential conditions of moral agency, and of course of moral obligation. By free will is meant, quote, the power of choosing or refusing to choose in compliance with moral obligation in every instance. Free will implies the power of originating and deciding our own choices and of exercising our own sovereignty in every instance of choice upon moral questions, of deciding or choosing in conformity with duty or otherwise in all cases of moral obligation. That man cannot be under a moral obligation to perform an absolute impossibility is a first truth of reason. But man's causality, his whole power to perform or do anything, lies in his will. If he cannot will, he can do nothing. His whole liberty or freedom must consist in his power to will. His outward actions and his mental states are connected with the actions of his will by a law of necessity. If I will to move my muscles, they must move, unless there be a paralysis of the nerves of voluntary motion, or unless some resistance be opposed which overcomes the power of my volitions. The sequences of choice or volition are always under the law of necessity, and unless the will is free, man has no freedom. And if he has no freedom, he is not a moral agent, that is, he is incapable of moral action and also of moral character. Free will, then, in the above-defined sense, must be a condition of moral agency and, of course, of moral obligation. End quote. Page 26. Quote, it should be observed that all acts of the will consist in choices or willings. These actions are generally regarded as consisting in choice and volition. By choice is intended the selection or choice of an end. By volition is intended the executive efforts of the will to secure the end intended. All intelligent choices or actions of the will must consist either in the choice of an end or of means to secure that end. To deny this is the same as to deny that there is any object of choice. If the will acts at all, it wills, chooses. If it chooses, it chooses something, there is an object of choice. In other words, it chooses something for some reason, and that reason is truly the object of choice. Or at least the fundamental reason for choosing a thing is the object chosen. End quote. Page 44. Quote, Consciousness of affirming the freedom of the will, that is, of power to will in accordance with moral obligation, or to refuse thus to will, is a necessary condition of the affirmation of moral obligation. For example, no man affirms, or can affirm, his moral obligation to undo the acts of his past life, and to live his life over again. He cannot affirm himself to be under this obligation, simply because he cannot but affirm the impossibility of it. He can affirm, and indeed cannot but affirm, his obligation to repent and obey God for the future, because he is conscious of affirming his ability to do this. Consciousness of the ability to comply with any requisition is a necessary condition of the affirmation of obligation to comply with that requisition. Then no moral agent can affirm himself to be under obligation to perform an impossibility. End quote. Page 33. Practicability is therefore an attribute of moral law. That which the precept demands must be possible to the subject. To talk of inability to obey moral law is to talk sheer nonsense. Page 4. Quote, By what authority do you affirm that God requires any more of any moral agent and of man in his present condition than he is able to perform? End quote. Page 8. In the commands to love God with all our strength and our neighbor as ourselves, it is said, God, quote, completely levels his claims by the very wording of these commandments to the present capacity of every human being, however young or old, however maimed, debilitated, or idiotic. End quote, page 8. Quote, if a man has willingly remained in ignorance of God, is his ignorance a moral or natural inability? If it is a moral inability, he can instantly overcome it by the right exercise of his own will. And nothing can be a moral inability that cannot be instantaneously removed by our own volition. End quote, page 9. Quote, the will is always free to choose in opposition to desire. This every moral agent is as conscious of as of his own existence. The desire is not free, but the choice to gratify it is and must be free. Desire is constitutional. It is a phenomenon of the sensibility. It is a purely involuntary state of mind and can in itself produce no action, and can in itself have no moral character. 
end quote, page 300 and 301. These extracts present with sufficient clearness Mr. Finney's doctrine on this point. With him, it is a first truth or axiom that freedom of the will is essential to moral agency, moral obligation, and moral character, that free will consists in the power to choose in every instance in conformity with moral obligation, and consequently that no man can be responsible for anything but the acts of his will, or what is under the immediate control of the will. Before proceeding to the second general principle on which his system rests, it may be proper to remark, in reference to the extracts given above, and the doctrine they inculcate, one, that Mr. Finney obviously uses the word will in its strict and limited sense. Everyone is aware that the word is often used for everything in the mind not included under the category of the understanding. In this sense, all mental affections, such as being pleased or displeased, liking and disliking, preferring and so on, are acts of the will. In its strict and proper sense, it is the power of self-determination, the faculty by which we decide our own acts. This is the sense in which the word is uniformly and correctly used in the work before us. 2. Mr. Finney is further correct in confining causality to the will, i.e. in saying that our ability extends no further than to voluntary acts. We have no direct control over our mental states beyond the sphere of the will. We can decide on our bodily acts and on the course of our thoughts, but we cannot govern our emotions and affections by direct acts of volitions. We cannot feel as we will. 3. In confounding liberty and ability, or in asserting their identity, Mr. Finney, as remarked on the preceding page, passes beyond the limits of first truths, and asserts that to be an axiom which the common consciousness of men denies to be a truth. 4. The fallacy of which he is guilty is very obvious. He transfers a maxim which is an axiom in one department to another in which it has no legitimate force. It is a first truth that a man without eyes cannot be under an obligation to see, or a man without ears to hear. No blind man ever felt remorse for not seeing, nor any deaf man for not hearing. Within the sphere, therefore, of physical impossibilities, the maxim that obligation is limited by ability is undoubtedly true. But it is no less obviously true that an inability, which has its origin in sin, which consists in what is sinful and relates to moral action, is perfectly consistent with continued obligation. Such is the instinctive judgment of men, such is the testimony of conscience, such the plain doctrine of the Bible, which no vehemence or frequency of contradiction or denial has ever been able to convince sinful men is not true. They would often give the world to be assured they were not bound to be better than an act of the will would make them. The second radical principle of Mr. Finney's system is that enjoyment, happiness, blessedness is the only intrinsic good, which is to be chosen for its own sake. This is the only absolute ultimate good, other things are only relatively good as means to this end. Hence, the highest good of being as such is the ultimate end to be chosen, as this doctrine is asserted or implied on every page of the book, we hardly know what particular assertion to quote. The following passages must suffice as a statement of the author's doctrine. Quote, the well-being of God and the universe is the absolute and ultimate good, and therefore it should be chosen by every moral agent. It is a first truth of reason that whatever is intrinsically valuable should be chosen for that reason or as an end. It is and must be a first truth of reason that whatever is intrinsically and infinitely valuable ought to be chosen as the ultimate end of existence by every moral agent. The moral law, then, must require moral agents to will good, or that which is intrinsically valuable to God and the universe of sentient existences for its own sake, or as an ultimate end. Page 43. Good may be natural or moral, Natural good is synonymous with valuable. Moral good is synonymous with virtue. Page 45. The law proposes to secure moral worth not as an ultimate end, not as the ultimate and absolute good of the subject, but as the condition of his being rewarded with absolute good. The lawgiver and the law propose ultimate and perfect satisfaction and blessedness as a result of virtue and of moral worth. This result must be the ultimate and absolute good. End quote. May it not, with just as much reason be said, a teacher proposes a good medal as the reward of proficiency and scholarship, therefore the attainment of a good medal is the ultimate end of education. Our author, however, proceeds, quote, The reason why virtue and moral excellence or worth has been supposed to be a good in themselves and intrinsically and absolutely valuable is that the mind necessarily regards them with satisfaction. 
page 47. If neither the subject of moral excellence or worth, nor anyone else experienced any satisfaction in contemplating it, if it did not meet a demand of our being, or of any being so as to afford the least satisfaction to any sentient existence, to whom or to what would it be a good? We are apt to say it is an ultimate good, but it is only a relative good. It meets a demand for our being, and thus produces satisfaction. This satisfaction is the ultimate good of being. Page 48. This satisfaction is a good in itself, but that which produces this satisfaction is in no proper sense a good in itself. It is absurd to make that an ultimate good, viz. virtue, and to affirm that to be intrinsically and ultimately valuable, whose whole value consists in its relations to an ultimate good. Page 49. In what sense of the term good can it be ultimate, not in the sense of moral good or virtue? This has been so often shown that it needs not be repeated here. Good can be ultimate only in the sense of natural and absolute. That is, that only can be an ultimate good which is naturally and intrinsically valuable to being. I come now to state the point upon which issue is taken, to wit, that enjoyment, blessedness, or mental satisfaction is the only ultimate good. Page 120. Of what value is the true, the right, the just, etc., aside from the pleasure or mental satisfaction resulting from them to sentient existences? Page 122. The Bible knows but one ultimate good. This, as has been said, the moral law has forever settled. The highest well-being of God and the universe is the only end required by the law. The law and the gospel propose the good of being only as the end of virtuous intention. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God and thy neighbour as thyself. Here is the whole duty of man, but here is nothing of choosing, willing, loving, truth, justice, right, utility or beauty as an ultimate end for their own sakes. The fact is, there are innumerable relative goods or conditions or means of enjoyment, but only an ultimate good. Disinterested benevolence to God and man is the whole of virtue, and every modification of love resolves itself in the last analysis into this. If this is so, well-being, in the sense of enjoyment, must be the only ultimate good. Page 123. The idea of good, or of the valuable, must exist before virtue can exist. It is, and must be, the development of the idea of the valuable that develops the idea of moral obligation, of right and wrong, and consequently, that makes virtue possible. The mind must perceive an object of choice that is regarded as intrinsically valuable before it can have the idea of moral obligation to choose it as an end. That object of choice cannot be virtue or moral beauty, for this would be to have the idea of virtue or moral beauty before the idea of moral obligation, or right or wrong. This were a contradiction. End quote. Page 125. That is, virtue consists in the choice of what is intrinsically valuable, Hence, the idea of the valuable must exist before virtue. Hence, virtue cannot be the thing chosen, but the intrinsically valuable, which it is virtue to choose. Therefore, enjoyment and not virtue must be the ultimate object of choice. The theory which maintains that there are several distinct grounds of moral obligation, that not only the good of being in general, but truth, justice, moral excellence, are each to be chosen for its own sake, he says, quote, virtually flatly contradicts the law of God and the repeated declaration that love to God and our neighbour is the whole of virtue. What, does God say that all law is fulfilled in one word, love, that is, love to God and our neighbour? And shall a Christian philosopher overlook this and insist that we ought to love not only God and our neighbour, but to will the right and the true, the just and the beautiful, and multitudes of such like things for their own sakes? The law of God makes and knows only one ultimate end, and shall this philosophy be allowed to confuse us by teaching there are many ultimate ends that we ought to will each for its own sake? Nay, verily. Page 147. I might here insist upon the intrinsic absurdity of regarding right, justice, virtue, the beautiful, as the ultimate good, instead of mental satisfaction or enjoyment. But I waive this point at present, and observe that either this theory resolves itself into the true one, namely, that the valuable to being, in whatsoever that value be found, is the sole foundation of moral obligation, or it is a pernicious error. If it be not the true theory, it does not and cannot teach aught but error on the subject of moral law, moral obligation, and of course, of morals and religion. It is either then confusion and nonsense, or it resolves itself into the true theory just stated, 
end quote. Page 148. From all this, it is abundantly evident that the writer teaches, one, that enjoyment, satisfaction, happiness is the only intrinsic good to be chosen for its own sake, two, that moral excellence is only a relative good, having no value but as the means or condition of enjoyment. On this doctrine, we remark, one, that it is readily admitted that happiness is a good, two, that it is consequently obligatory on all moral agents to endeavour to promote it, 3. That the highest happiness of the universe, being an unspeakably exalted and important end to make its attainment the object of life, is a noble principle of action. 4. Consequently, this theory of moral obligation is inconceivably more elevated than that which makes self-love the ultimate principle of action, and our own happiness the highest object of pursuit. 5. That the error of the theory is making enjoyment the highest and the only intrinsic or real good. 6. That this error derives no countenance from the fact that the Bible represents love to God and love to our neighbour as the fulfilling of the law. To derive any argument from this source, Mr. Finney must first take the truth of his theory for granted. To prove that all love is benevolence, it must be assumed that happiness is the only good. If love is vastly more than benevolence, if a disposition to promote happiness is only one, and that one of the lowest forms of that comprehensive excellence which the scriptures call love, his argument is worth nothing. In accordance with that meaning of the term which universal usage has given it, any outgoing of the soul, whether under the form of desire, affection, complacency, reverence, delight towards an appropriate object, is in the Bible called love. To squeeze all this down and wire-draw it through one pinhole is as impossible as to change the nature of the human soul. Every man, not a slave to some barren theory of the understanding, knows that love to God is not benevolence, that it is approbation, complacency, delight in his moral excellence, reverence, gratitude, devotion. The reason, then, why the scriptures represent love as the fulfilling of the law is twofold, First, because love to an infinitely perfect being involves in it approbation of all conceivable forms of moral excellence and consequent congeniality of soul with it under all those forms. He who really loves a God of truth, justice, purity, mercy and benevolence is himself truthful, just, holy, merciful and kind. Secondly, because love to God and man will secure all obedience to the precepts of the law. We may admit, therefore, that love is the fulfilling of the law, without being sophisticated into believing, or rather saying, that faith is love, justice is love, patience love, humility love. Nothing is more foreign to the whole character of the Bible than to make it speak the language of a theory. It speaks the language of the common consciousness of men, expecting to be understood as men would understand each other. Who can believe that any man, undisciplined by metaphysics, would believe that faith or humility is benevolence, the love of being as such, willing happiness for its own sake. We promised, however, not to discuss Mr. Finney's principles. We propose to rely on the reductio ad absurdum and make his doctrines the refutation of his principles. End of section 13